This is Trojan Talk. We are back. I'm Ryan Young, joined by former USC quarterback and now Trojans analyst Max Brown. We are going to break down USC's pivotal home game Friday night against number 10-11 Utah and get really deep into that matchup. And we'll hit on a few other fun topics. We had an interesting interview with Mike Jinks uh, earlier this week that I want to touch on and and relay. But this is going to be a matchup-heavy podcast because this game is so important. Um, yeah, th- this is this is not a normal season for USC. You know, they're two and one, and the fourth game of the season usually wouldn't be so dramatically huge. But with everything that's hovering over this team at all times, and that's regarding Clay Helton's tenuous status and all the chatter and buzz that goes along with that, and the gauntlet that this is really part of when you have Washington on the road next, Notre Dame on the road after the bye week. This game takes on far larger meaning than it might in different seasons. Yeah, yeah. Max, from your vantage point, how how pivotal is this to the big picture of USC and Clay Helton? This game's yeah. This game's crucial. This this game's huge. It, it's funny though because I kind of look at it from two different angles. I look at it from one, it's this is USC versus Utah with a coach that's on the hot seat. Like, you have to win this game. You have to get this done kind of thing. But then I take a step back, and, I, and I'm saying, wait a sec. Even if this was a Pete Carroll, heyday USC team, this game is still going to be a challenge for that team. Like, Utah is a great football team. Utah is a – and it, yeah. I know it's Utah, and I know SC fans still – or maybe maybe SC fans are getting to the point where they're kind of year in and year out respecting the Utes and kind of putting some uh, credibility, like high credibility on their name. But I know nationally it's still not there. But I think this is a team that this is a great football team. And so what I'm getting at is in the event that things maybe don't go your way, it's almost a game that – and I know this is crazy to, to, to say, but it's, it's – it's, and you can, you can sense me kind of stuttering there that it's almost okay to lose because this is a f- great football team. If you, if you won out and your one loss is to Utah, you lost to a great football team. Then, let me put a huge asterisk next to that, obviously it's USC, obviously it's Utah. USC should never be losing to Utah. I totally understand that. But I go back and forth in terms of, hey, we can't lose track of the – lose track of the fact that this isn't BYU we're playing. This isn't a team that's going to probably – I don't know. BYU is probably going to win, I don't know eight games or so or however just around there like utah is a team that has aspirations for college football playoff they have the roster to back that they have the track record in terms of guys on their roster that have got things done so um it's a huge test for usc no doubt i think it's good you're we're not playing in uh rice stadium and uh you have it in the coliseum but uh yeah this will be a fun pod kind of breaking down the matchups I have to imagine that USC and its fan base certainly respects Utah now, especially after last year, because that was one of the true beatdowns this, this Trojans team took last fall. It was 41-28, but that even doesn't reflect how lopsided that game was. Uh, the Utes manhandled USC in Salt Lake City last year, so that's, that's fresh in the mind. It's hard to shake that. They come into the season, obviously, uh, picked as favorites in the Pac-12. Um, Definitely the favorite in the Pac-12 South. And they're off to a 3-0 start, but this is going to be their toughest test, too. I mean, they they beat BYU 30-12. They beat Northern Illinois 35-17, and then Idaho State 31-0. So they've handled business, which is all you can do with the teams on the schedule. But, but this will be their first real gauge to see if – to prove if they are truly legitimate uh, Pac-12 contenders, if they belong in that national top 10 where, where they are right now. So it's big on both sides. But for USC, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not going to be the dead horse and harp on it. I, in general, am not comfortable. I don't like speculating about you know people's futures and, and jobs and stuff. But it, it's so prevalent, it's so out there that you can't talk about this team and not talk about that hanging over things. And you know, we just don't know how much of a window or a leash Clay is going to have to show the administration what he can do this season. And that's why every game's big, because we just don't know where things stand. Obviously, there's no AD in place right now. So you would think, at least through the bye week, before any evaluation is made, but there's limited uh, showcases between now and then to really make a statement. So this is huge. Now, I'm always interested in, in how, in trying to read between the lines on player comments. and. I find largely players tend to downplay things. 
downplay good things, downplay bad things, kind of stay in the middle. So when we were asking the guys on Tuesday just how big this game was for their season, I thought it was kind of refreshing the answers we got. Um, Brandon Peely pretty much said what I what I would say or what I have just said. He said that how we respond to that loss will determine what kind of team we'll be. And that, that's how I feel. We're going to learn everything this week about this team, what it's capable of, how it handles adversity, and where it's going to go. Without a doubt. This is a huge test. And I think um, in terms of responses and all that, I think that's where maybe SC has the advantage in that they have been tested more this season. They have had to go and play a very solid Fresno State team. They have had to go play Stanford, um, who we can debate kind of where they rank in terms of in terms of things, but at least a solid team. And then they've had to go out and play BYU on the road, which Utah had to as well. But obviously SC had some some tough kind of look yourself in the mirror type lessons with that. So I think that's maybe where an advantage that SC has. But I think uh, I think that locker room, having been in that locker room before, guys know kind of what Utah symbolizes in terms of a, guy, a team that's going to it's going to be a big man's game, as, as Helton says, in terms of a physical game. Guys are going to have to get up for it. So I, I'm right with you. I like how guys are kind of treating this like – I mean, this is uh, this is a championship game, and it's. I mean, I'm not going to be exaggerating and, and talk about okay, week what week four? It's a championship game. Like obviously, a lot of things can happen, but if SC wins this game, their season's right back on track. And I know obviously that you're going to have a huge, huge blemish with that BYU loss, but uh, I, I like that the, the the team's approaching it that way, and I like that it's coming um, from a, a nose tackle who knows that hey. For, for SC to win this game, a guy like Brandon Peely is going to have to show up big. A guy like Marlon Tui Pelotu yeah. is going to have to have the same performance he had last week. J2 Fele, all those guys, they got to come up big. I think the depth at uh, D-line for SC is going to be uh, going to be clutching this game because Zach Moss is an absolute stud. And, that and um, yeah, that's going to be a big test for him. You make a good point. We phrase this so much as the challenges for USC, this gauntlet that's ahead. It is also an opportunity. It is an opportunity to really move past the BYU thing and, and reset things and, and, and make a statement that, hey, uh, we haven't shown you what we can be yet. This season has a lot of life yet. Clay Helton has a chance to prove himself. So it's, it's an opportunity as much as it is a challenge. You mentioned it being a championship game. Several players use that terminology too, and said this is this is the Pac-12 South Championship, just because it's that's the way it's kind of been in recent years. This game has been so pivotal to that. So it's it's exciting to have a game with with these kind of stakes early in the season. I fully expect that USC is going to have all the energy and motivation it needs. It's going to play tough. I just don't like this matchup for the Trojans at all for for a number of reasons, and we're going to start with the Utah offense and the challenges that presents. And you mentioned Zach Moss. Um, let's, let's go right there. I, I mean, I, I think he's – most would regard him as one of the best running backs in the country at this point. He's, he's uh, He averaged 6.1 yards per game last year. He's off to a great start this year. What sets him apart in your eyes? What makes him in that elite group? Yeah, that elite group has two Pac-12 South running backs, and you talk about Eno Benjamin and Zach Moss, two guys that are going to hear their name, I mean, relatively early in next year's draft, most likely, if, if all things go according to plan. I think Zach Moss, um, one, I mean, he's, he's a physical back. He's perfect for that Utah scheme. He's patient. He punishes guys. He's always falling forward. Kind of all those maybe cliche terms you hear of a running back, like he definitely brings to the table. Uh, he's got a lot of carries under his belt, but I think um, when I watch Zach Moss, it's just the ability that Utah has to give him the rock, and he'll go two yards, three yards, two yards, three yards, and then boom, he'll break one, and then boom in the fourth corner quarter when he kind of wears you down, that's when he kicks up the kicks up the gas. Um, but I think it's just kind of the whole system. He plays well into the whole system that Utah has in terms of we're going to be a physical team, we're going to have a dynamic back deck back there that's going to be the key to our offense and. Uh, they're going to be rolling, and they're deep this year. Uh, I'm blanking on their backup running back's name right now. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, they, they have they have backs. I think that's kind of the biggest improvement that you, we've seen of Utah over the course of them being in the Pac-12 is kind of the depth of uh, depth of just athletes they have. So, um, yeah, and I, I can get in. I'm right with you in terms of it being a tough matchup for USC, so we can get into that. But uh, I'll let you uh, I'll let you uh, go step by step with the matchup deal. 
Yeah, well, their backup running back is uh, Devontae Henry Cole. And then they also have freshman Jordan Wilmore, who was a USC commit until uh, pretty far down the line last year before flipping to Utah. So interesting storyline there. But, but Zach Moss has uh, 373 yards and four touchdowns, averaging six and a half yards per carry so far. He went for 136 against USC last year. You know, we've we viewed the defensive line as a strength for this team, but we've also seen the teams that try to get off out on the edge have had a lot of success. And, and Clancy Pendergast touched on that this week. He said, if, if you're going to be stout and control the middle and not allow much up the middle, teams are going to test you on the edge, and we've got to be better there. He flat out said, we have got to tackle better. What, what's your biggest concern about the matchup with – this Utah rushing attack. Yeah, I mean, it's just the fact that, I mean, Zach Moss and that offensive line is a tough rush. It's a tough matchup for anyone, but you talk about they can go, Utah can go rushing yards from Zach Moss, rushing yards from their backup running backs when they when they filter them in there. They still do spread elements with Tyler Huntley, and Tyler Huntley can beat, beat you with his legs. And his style is, I mean, he's a dual-threat guy, so it's, I mean, buy an extra time. But his style is he's not necessarily going to run Tons and tons of times throughout a game, but the one time he does run, it's for a 20-yard chunk. It's for a 30-yard chunk. Yeah. And then what I've also seen uh, when I broke down the BYU game against him is they're really trying to get their senior receiver, Damari Simpkins, involved. Uh, that's a name. He's played against SC in the past. He's been a playmaker for him, but they really like him, and they've, they've implemented – uh, some jet sweep stuff with uh, with Simpkins to try to have that be kind of a third element to that rush game under their new offensive coordinator, Andy Ludwig. So, um, yeah, new offensive coordinator as well. So that's kind of a, a new element, but it's that's not necessarily groundbreaking uh, per se. But I think when you have three key pieces you can bring to the ga- bring to the park in terms of a rushing attack, that's uh, that's tough for any off or any defense to to handle. That's what worries me and. But especially what worries me is Tyler Huntley and his mobility. Now, we talked to Clancy Pendergast this week, and he was raving about the maturation and development he's seen from Huntley as a pocket passer. That he's more comfortable, that he's staying in the pocket longer, going through his reads. And the numbers bear it out. He's completed 77.8% of his passes so far, which is way up from the last two years where he was right around 64%. He's got uh, four touchdowns, no picks. He's rushed for 99 yards and a touchdown. This is a guy who who torched USC last year, let's be honest. He had 341 passing yards, four touchdowns, no picks, and rushed for a touchdown. He was the difference in that game, and Clancy Pendergast is saying, this guy's even better this year. And we've already seen USC struggle against Fresno State quarterback Jorge Reyna, who was mobile, struggle against Zach Wilson, who extended plays last week for BYU and, and scored a 16-yard rushing touchdown in a pivotal moment. They have not done well against mobile quarterbacks. And, and, and this guy, even if it's not going to be his first thought to take off and run, that, that risk, that threat is, is looming over the whole game, every third and long, every situation. How much does Tyler Huntley scare you overall in this matchup? Yeah, I'm a fan of Tyler Huntley. I think – uh I mean, if, if USC fans kind of wondered what I did last season because I wasn't at SC and I, I wasn't playing, I did a lot of stuff on Utah radio and kind of breaking down what Tyler Huntley did. And um, early in the season, people were giving him a, a tough rap last year, I'm talking last year, of like not being able to – or like did, did he have it? Like what about him as a pocket passer or whatnot? And I was like, hey, hang on. The, the kid's got it. And sure enough, he's kind of developed into that. But it's exactly the de- development you want in terms of – Okay, him as a sophomore, you knew he had the arm talent to like make some things happen, but he always kind of relied on his on his legs. Last year it was like a little bit of both, but then and then he started really clicking last October before he broke his collarbone, I believe it was. So um, now this offseason, I think he gained like 20 pounds. It was kind of a, a mentality switch of like, hey, I'm the senior captain. Um, I'm senior captain. We have a championship roster. Like it's it's on me to to make things happen and not necessarily just be a, a run first Zach Moss attack. And and he's definitely grown into that. So he definitely concerns me. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say. I mean, I, I think uh, he, he's no he's no Jacob Eason at Washington. He's no Justin Herbert at Oregon. Uh, I, I, he's no KJ Costello at Stanford. I mean, he's not to that level. But in terms of he, I mean, he's definitely a guy you sleep on when you talk about quarterbacks and their ability across the Pac-12. But uh, 
I think comparing him to a Zach Wilson who we saw last week, I think Zach Wilson is uh, probably a bit more uh, wild and in, or wild and crazy, for lack of a better term, in terms of just. <laughs> I guess Johnny Manziel-esque is, is probably the, the, the term I'm looking right. for in terms of like we saw a play last week where he's turning his back to the rushers and then like running around only to like cut up down the middle kind of thing. I don't know if you necessarily get that much with Tyler Huntley, but in terms of the speed and the capabilities, uh, it's there for him to extend the play and SC has to keep their rushing lanes. I guarantee you that's what they're focusing on this week. Um, but by and large, I think you're going to see him more under center than uh, than you saw Zach uh, Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson was a lot of a lot of shotgun. You're still going to see Tyler Huntley in the shotgun, but it is more under center, which I think prevents mobility just a little bit, just because you're having to drop back and you're not just standing back there in the pocket the full time, right, just kind of waiting to run out. But his legs are his legs are a big factor, um, and I think like Clancy said, the biggest improvement he's made is. Now you can sit back there and you can uh, – you, you're not surprised if Tyler Huntley leads the Utes down the field and th- through the air. That's not a surprise anymore versus that would have been a surprise two years ago. Yeah, and you know I touched on the top. This, again, is also the biggest test so far for Utah, and, and Huntley has not been asked to do a ton through the air so far. He had just 16 attempts versus BYU. It was an easy win for them. He had 19 attempts against Northern Illinois and 19 against Idaho State in a, in a blowout. So we are judging a small sample size through three games from him, but it has been impressive. Another impressive stat is that Utah is the only team in the country that has played three games and not allowed a sack so far. And we've talked a lot about this USC defense. So much of the blueprint for them to be successful is for that defensive line and for those veteran pass rushers to wreak havoc in the backfield and take some pressure off the secondary. And, and Utah just hasn't given up anything there. What do you see in that matchup up front? And we're going to talk about it the other way around with uh, in the trenches from the offensive perspective for USC, but from the defensive perspective, what do you see in that matchup up front? Yeah, so I know uh, the main concern for Utah this offseason was the offensive line, uh, kind of similar to, 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 to USC to an extent. It's kind of Utah's secondary had a lot coming back. They felt that their D-line had a lot coming back. Linebacker they felt confident with, even though they lost two guys to the NFL. Um, it was kind of O-line. It was like those were the questions all fall camp. If USC's questions were secondary and O-line, Utah's question was O-line. And, um, so I don't think they're invincible. I know like Utah's had, uh, when I was there, their left tackle was a first-round pick. Bowles, I think it was. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they necessarily have that. Um, so I think for them, this USC defensive line is going to be a big test. Uh in terms of just, they, I don't know if they've seen guys to that uh, to that level. As I say that out loud, they obviously practice against Utah's defensive front every single day, so they they have seen that. As I say that out loud, they they are going to be expected for that. But I don't think it's some invincible invincible up front. But I think if you're looking at keys for the game, USC's defensive line has to be um, a huge key in terms of getting pressure, wreaking havoc. Um, but yeah, and then backtracking to your your point, you mentioned uh, kind of the back end of the Tyler Huntley deal. Uh, they they beat BYU and they had a great second half, but that first half was all knotted up and BYU kind of got after them and it was it was tied going into half and then Utah kind of came out of the locker room and had a great first drive led by Tyler Huntley. I was impressed how that roster kind of handled the whole deal. Utah had a big big turnover to get that game. Uh, to, to, to kind of run away with that game or get the get the start of the run going, so it's not like they absolutely whooped up on BYU. Just as when you're when you're comparing sure. apples to apples, but uh, obviously they fared better than SC in terms of uh, big picture stuff. Yeah, and you know the Utah offensive line is not an overly experienced unit. They have left tackle Darren Polo has 29 career starts, and center Orlando Umana has 14 career starts. Right tackle Nick Ford has 10 career starts. And then they have some young guys or some, some inexperienced guys filling in. So you're right. You would hope that this USC defensive line with a lot of veteran pieces plus freshman Drake Jackson could make an impact in this game. And if they don't, I fear that that would be a lot to overcome for the Trojans. I think they have to get success up front there. All signs point to Christian Rector playing this week. Um, I think maybe we underestimated, or I underestimated, what his absence would mean last week. They, I, I just think his veteran presence would have helped in some of those breakdowns off the edge. Maybe they get a couple more plays in the backfield. Uh, for the second time in three games, Clancy Pendergast was bemoaning that they 
left sacks on the field. They had three sacks, but he thought they could have had more. Same thing he said after, after the first game. What do you think is the best way to address the breakdowns off the edge and just the tackling issues? I, I mean, I, I know you're an offensive guy, but, but going through practices, seeing the, the way teams work, how do you fix that in season? Yeah, I think, uh, one, it's tough. I think the uh, the missed tackles deal, I think it's probably a byproduct, a little bit of having some, some younger secondary members out there in terms of whether it's a physical nature, whether it's a mentality deal, all that stuff. Um, but then, yeah, you mentioned missing missing Christian Rector off the edge. I think having him him back is big. But uh, I think, yeah, first and foremost, you need the, the defensive line to to step up big because stopping the run. Uh, I mean, the, the game plan for success is. I know we just kind of loved up, or I loved up Tyler Huntley a little bit there. But don't get it twisted. The game plan for success is to put the ball in Tyler Huntley's hands, stop Zach Moss in the run, make him absolutely earn it through the ground, and see if Tyler Huntley can go and win you a game in the Coliseum. So that's definitely the recipe for success. Um, But, yeah, I think, I mean, that whole attack, it's going to be a huge – you talk about a huge test. It's going to be a huge test on kind of that nickel spot, whoever ends up being there. I know there's maybe some some injury concerns there. And then EA and then John Houston. You talk about those guys – they're going to be put in binds when you talk about uh, Tyler Huntley's legs on zone reads to, to Zach Moss. Can they stay disciplined? I know SC's had uh, – shoot, they had some some RPO issues when, when I was there with uh, the quarterback from San Clemente, uh, Travis Wilson. I mean, so that, that – I mean – that, that zone read action is something that Utah's always done to SC, so those linebackers will have to be locked in. But um, to your point about fixing it midseason, it's tough because it's not realistic to go out there and and, uh, and SC fans might uh, disagree with this, but it's not realistic to go out there and tackle full-fledged Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's just not like, you, you, I mean, you're going to go in absolutely beat up. And uh, sure, maybe you emphasize more tackling on Tuesday. I'm cool with that. that maybe, that's, maybe that's your... Uh, Maybe that's your, uh, your your way to get over it, but I think it's a mentality of all right. We got this team's going to be physical, and uh, you got to go out there and and make sure that hey, even if you don't have your buddy out there, we can't be missing tackles, and you got to stay in your lanes. You can't. Not every play is going to be the home run sack or anything like that. Stay in your lanes and uh, just be disciplined. That's my fear: is that that's going to be a persistent problem all season, and we're not going to truly see a fix there and it's just going to be an underlying storyline for this this defense but, but we'll see uh you mentioned earlier Andy Ludwig who's Utah's new offensive coordinator he's also Utah's old offensive coordinator he was there a while back he's bounced around a lot of places was at Vanderbilt the last few years was also at Cal for a couple years overlap with Clancy Pendergast for a season so they're familiar do you see any difference in, in what he's doing versus what we've known from this Utah offense in recent years? Not really. Um, and I was expecting more that, that first week when I was watching the BYU game when they played, but it's it, it's pretty much what we've seen. And what is that? It's uh, a multiple offense, uh, which I know is kind of a buzzword, but what that, what, what that means is you'll see Tyler Huntley – uh, under center and in the gun, um, both pretty pretty fair, pretty even. They, they, they do both. Um, the element I kind of touched on earlier that's new to me is a little bit more jet sweep with Damari Simpkins kind of in there, number three. Uh, he's, that's his jersey number in terms of their, uh, their, their receiver. But you'll see play action. You'll see them utilizing Zach Moss both just in the downhill run game and off play action. Third down, you'll see the whole – whole gamut of uh of past concepts you're used to seeing um i think early on in 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 tyler huntley's career i think they had a lot more uh a lot more really truly designed uh quarterback runs and then even dating back to kind of my early years at sc like when travis wilson was there they did a lot of rpo stuff i don't know if it's to the extent of that anymore but uh it's just it's just, I mean, not good old-fashioned football, but it's it's pretty like modern day modern day football. Little under center, little in the shotgun, mixing it up, trying to put pressure uh, on the defense in different ways. But don't get it twisted; it all centers around Zach Moss and their ability to run the ball and get after you, uh, get after you up front. Well, let's round out the breakdown of the Utah offense by talking about the receivers. You mentioned Damari Simpkins, the five ten junior. Overall, though, it's a pretty s- smallish receiving core. Their top receivers are are 5'8", junior Britton Covey, and 5'9", sophomore Jalen Dixon so far. That said, Elijah Griffin, 
USC's uh, impressive sophomore cornerback said this is the best group of receivers I've seen so far. Now, that's a small sample size because he's only been a starter for a few games, but it was still a noteworthy comment. What do you think about the matchup with USC's young secondary versus that kind of smallish Utes receiving core? Yeah, definitely small receiving core, which is uh, which is different. I think Utah's had some uh, some big receivers or like rangy is probably the right word, receivers in pass in terms of I know they've had, they've had some, some JC transfers and some – some longer, taller guys. I can remember my my last year there at SC. I think we lost on like a back shoulder fade ball to like a, a bigger receiver. Um, so yeah, this will be different. Uh, Britton Covey, who you touched on, he's been around forever. I mean, if you're listening, if you're listening to right. this and saying uh, I, I recognize that name, I mean his. He made a big play against me or our team when I like what 2015, and then he went on his mission. So like he's been there for a while, but so an experienced guy, but a smaller crew, which I think uh, will present a different challenge. And maybe it's easier when we talk about tackling issues. Maybe it's easier on that that secondary when they're not getting blocked by maybe bigger receivers at BYU when they're tackling smaller guys, kind of thing. So maybe that's uh, an advantage we see, but. I think smaller receivers are going to be in and out, in and out of breaks. Uh, some some quicker some quicker options, and uh, SC will have to be locked in. I look for them to continue to stay in kind of that nickel package a bunch. If uh, it, it, I mean when, when Clancy uh, thinks that's appropriate, I think that'll be big with with uh, a lot of those drag routes and uh, routes you're accustomed to seeing by smaller slot slot receiver type body guys. This is. Uh this is going to be a telling game for the secondary, uh, depending on how much they're tested. Again, we were super high on that group coming off the Stanford game, especially Elijah Griffin, who was just lights out in coverage in that game. It, it wasn't quite the same story at BYU. They had some some busts back there. It was kind of an uneven performance. So, you know, I, I talked to Greg Burns this week, the defensive backs coach, and and he said what he's been saying. You know, it's we're now the finished product. It's 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 a work in progress. It's it's going to keep. We're, we're going to have mistakes. We're going to have uh, good moments. It is what it is. So I, I think that's probably what we can expect for a while with this group. But I am curious, game to game, to see how they perform. Greg Burns keeps it real. Let's, I tell you, he's, he's the coach. Uh, he does. I like him. He keeps it real. It's funny, too, because he's got the position group that has uh, or had the most questions in the offseason. So it's funny that he's the one that's probably the most transparent. That's good stuff. Well, you teed me up for a natural segue here, so I'm, I'm going to skip ahead a segment and, and mix the order up, and we're going to go straight Love to it. another USC coach who keeps it very real. Talk to Mike Jenks, the running backs coach, on Monday. And, of course, if you listen to the last podcast, Max and I had a great debate about Marquis Stepp, his usage. I'm fascinated to see what um, Coach I'm Jenks sur- is saying. I'm, I, what, what, what side <laughs> is he on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty clear what side yeah. he's on, but it's how emphatic he is. But uh, you, you know, it's it's a debate that's very much out there in uh, in the USC fan base, and it's I I was kind of beating the drum that I wanted to see more Marquis stuff. I certainly wasn't alone. I thought you made some great points last week about why that's maybe not necessarily as uh, pressing a matter as some of us are making it out to be. So we go to Mike Jenks. And just to, to set the table for this conversation, I uh, actually went up there, and my first question was about Vi, Malapai. And I just said, you know, what is it that Vi has done to really earn that, that uh, majority Ooh, workload? A tough that, one. That, that, that number one I like role. it. And, and, and Mike Jinks, who I really enjoy talking to uh, every time, you could tell that he's very much aware of the Marquis step chatter and was already on guard. So even though the question wasn't about Marquis Stepp, it was about <laughs> Vi, he, he kind of went right there, and he said it's what he does every day out here in practice, and just kind of let it hang there for a second. And I'm like, all right. And then he continued, and he goes, I don't care about feelings. The truth is told. If they want more touches, they want the ball, they do what they need to do on a daily basis out here, and Vi does. So that's a strong statement. Uh, but it wasn't the only one. He he, he continued later on, and I, I did actually get into a marquee step question, and I, and I just said, I said, well, Mike, you know, the reason why everyone it became a, a talking point was because he had those three impressive carries in the second quarter, and then we didn't see him again uh, for a while. And Mike Jinks said, validly, uh, there were there were ten plays in the third quarter. I want somebody to bring that up. That's just a fact. You ask me a question, that's the answer. 
And then he says, again, I really don't care what anybody says. We're going to do what's best for this football team. So uh, just, just know that whatever grumbling there is in the fan base about Marquis Stepp's usage, it is not going to factor into Mike Jenks' uh, approach moving forward. Hey, stand your ground, Mike Jenks. I like it. Hey, yeah, he has three great running backs, so uh, he, I mean, he's in a great spot for, uh, to, to be an RB's coach, obviously. But, uh, hey, I respect it. What are your, uh, what are your thoughts after uh, hearing, hearing his comments? Well, I, I think you, you really swayed me uh, in, in the last podcast that I, there were factors I wasn't considering about, you know, what it means to have Marquis step out there for a whole series and, and maybe he's not doing everything that the other guys can do. We don't know how he's doing in pass protection and practice. There's a lot we don't know. We just see a guy who creates yards after contact unlike the other guys. Now you have Stephen Carr who can make guys miss and create yards that way, but when it's muddled up and, and it's jammed up and there's, and there's not much going like it was last week, that's really what, what brought the Marquis step debate uh, to its zenith, was that in, in those moments he just seemed like a, like a great fit. And I kind of think that we might be in the same boat this week with Utah and their stout defensive front. And I just – I my curiosity is how flexible will the coaches be? If they go into it with the same routine – and they're getting stuffed, and then there aren't lanes, and, and, and Vi can't get rolling, and Stephen Carr, who really needs to operate in space, can't get the ball in space and is struggling to create his own space from behind the line of scrimmage. I wonder if, not because we all raised the point last week, but because of what they saw from Marquis Stubb, if maybe they go to him earlier and say, give us a spark, big guy. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, I, I totally see where that's coming from. I, I like how he honed in on like the whole, there's only 10 plays in the third quarter because – I, yeah, I, I like because while it sounds great on paper, the whole like we'll, we'll rotate them all in, we'll rotate them all three, three, three running backs in kind of thing. The reality is when you have 10 plays in a third quarter and let's say, I don't know, Stephen Carr got the second to last series in the second quarter. So then he doesn't play the rest of the second quarter. He doesn't play the third quarter. And then he's getting in there like eight minutes in the fourth quarter. I don't care which jersey number it is, which guy it is, who you like, who or I think everyone likes these backs. It's not a like it's that's not a matter of someone not liking them, but I don't care who it is. That's just hard to operate as a football player when you're go like when you're not in that mode. And so I've always wondered that with USC running backs in terms of you look at a lot of these programs around the country, they kind of have their one bell cow and then the other guys just kind of like a supplemental supplemental uh, when, when the first guy gets tired. There's a reason for that because you allow your running back to kind of get in a rhythm. And so I, I, I always, totally. I always yeah. worry just kind of with that dynamic. And I also don't see the, uh, see a huge, just uh, marquee step is his strength, short yardage. Yes. I'm right with you. I, the, the discrepancy in terms of yards after contact is not, um, is not, uh, like crazy, uh, crazy polarizing for me in terms of uh, these backs, in terms of physical contact yards. To me, I think the huge advantage is that Stephen Carr allows you to allows you to to maybe break a couple more tackles, and then Vi just be, having been a quarterback in those rooms, I know that Vi is Mister Trusty in terms of checkdowns, getting out on checkdowns on time, going where he's supposed to be, getting the width on his routes, pass protection. Ball, uh, ball security, kind of all those things that aren't sexy. I guarantee Vi that Vi, uh, Vi, he, I mean, he's he, he's great at that. But and then I also have to kind of finish with it's not me being a marquee step hater. I think he's a great back. If you told me that 30s the only guy we're rocking with, I'm cool with it. But it's fun kind of looking at both sides of this. And those are those are this is gonna be a question uh, we've talked about all year so far, Ryan. This is gonna be a question every podcast, and uh, it's a fun, it's a fun it one. Might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to make the same qualification. I'm not down on Vi or Stephen Carr, and, and a, a lot of people have totally jumped off the Carr bandwagon again, and, and I don't agree with that. I think we saw enough the first two games that if, when he's deployed in, in the best way possible, the most conducive way to his skill set, he's a, still a major weapon. Uh, I, I just think that he has to be used in a certain way, and that way wasn't really happening last game. As for Vi, I've, I've always liked Vi. Um, Love talking to him. Very humble guy. I was asking him what was different last game. Was it just the, the lanes weren't there? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. The, 
that they were calling the right plays. That there, there were things there. I need to be more patient and wait for things to develop. So he put it all on himself. So we'll see. And you know, for loyal listeners of this podcast, those who go all the way back to last season will tell you that I was arguing the opposite last year. I do not like running back by committee. I do not like even rotations. I like to have a dominant one one, one guy. So I'm deviating from my own ethos here uh, by by pushing for more Marquis step. It's just that I think in situations you can be very effective. So we will, I'm sure, like you said, revisit <laughs> this debate. I'm going to be curious to see how, how they do this week. Uh, I'm not down on Vi. I'm not down on Carr. And uh, I, I will I will defer to uh, Mike Jinks and his decision making. Though, if one wanted to make a counterpoint to his ten plays in the third quarter claim, they would say yes, there were only ten plays in the third quarter because there were nine <laughs> runs and eight were and eight were ineffective. <laughs> so, uh, you, you should have you should have chirped back at him. That funny. <laughs> If I if I had thought quicker on my feet, I might have in a respectful, polite way. But it didn't come to me in the moment. And I, th- I thought more about it. I'm like, well, yeah, that's because eight of those runs went nowhere, and they were quick punts. Anyways, though, we'll see what happens. Um, let's switch it up to the Utah defense. So let's talk about the matchup in the trenches the other way. USC's offense versus... What is always a stout Utah defensive front, it was a stifling one in that matchup last year. And through three games, the Utes rank seventh nationally in rush defense, giving up a stingy 65 yards per game on the ground. Again, small sample size against BYU, Northern Illinois, and Idaho State. So all stats this early in the season when it comes to national rankings and everything, take with a grain of salt. But I do not take this U.S. or this uh, Utah rush defense with a grain of salt. I'm a believer. As you watch this team, Max, you watch film. What stands out to you about the matchup up there? Yeah, and your point about it's a small sample size. It is, but the, the the counter to that is these guys on the defensive line have been doing it for years, and you have some experienced yep. guys. They're led by uh, Bradley Anai and Lucky Fotu. Anai uh, represented or represented Utah at the uh, the Pac-12 media days. Both those guys were guys that elected to come back to school. So NFL is definitely on their radar. Um, I mean, you look at their D-line, they have about I mean, four or five NFL guys that are that are, that are going to get a call on Sundays uh, if not drafted before then. So this to me is the biggest test for USC and I interviewed uh, Tim Drevno today for the USC uh, pregame podcast and or pregame show on the radio and I was asking him about it and he said that I mean Max you have it have it spot on this is a huge test for us um he mentioned the fact that hey USC's defense line is good too so I mean they in terms of tests and being prepped like that's that's one area that SC I mean has has going for him but those two guys Anaya's number six and uh Lucky Foto I'm blanking on his number but he'll play inside both these guys I think uh, I think year over year Utah is always stout. I like that word that you used, but Anai gives them some some uh, some edge rushing, and they have uh, they have some some rush to them. So it's not necessarily they're just going to plug up gaps. They're going to get it done uh, in the rush scheme as well. So SC's offensive line's got to come come ready to play. I think uh, Graham Harrell's got to do some things schematically to probably slow down that rush to keep them off pace, keep them off balance. It's not going to be a game where SC can just be like. All right, our 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 guy is better than your guy in terms of the offensive and defensive line front. That's not necessarily the case across the board, and so um, yeah, SC's going to have to go out there and and out scheme them at certain points in the at certain points in the game. I enjoy talking to Tim Drev now, although I will say he, he's always uh, super upbeat and positive. <laughs> I don't think we have, we get the same kind of insight or or frankness that we would get from a Greg Burns or from a Mike Jinks or even from a Chad Cow. Ha, 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 ha. There we go. I've been working on that there one. There we go. I've been working on that. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to ha- have him listen to that recording and, and grade me because I, I, I was definitely off early, early, earlier in the season. Um, but from your conversation with Tim Drevno, did did you get any critique from the BYU performance? Did, did he kind of give you anything that he saw or thought? Um, nothing groundbreaking. I mean, uh, I think he acknowledged the fact that uh, – the, the big plays never happen. So when you look at the stat line, um, it's, I mean, 170 yards on 40 carries. It's like four yards a carry. So it's nothing groundbreaking. Um, so it's not like they got shut down. I don't think anyone's saying that. But uh, there was no big run plays. And that's what you need in terms of 
uh, when teams drop eight, you need one of those one of those runs to kind of burst for for twenty five or thirty. So it was finished in those blocks. Uh, but in terms of overarching groundbreaking uh, changes or anything, I, I don't think it's that. I do think there's probably a mental shift though. I mean, you talk about if you're a USC offensive lineman walking into the BYU game, you're probably reading a little bit of the press clippings in terms of, hey, this defensive line is not very good, meaning BYU is not very good, hasn't performed, ah, we'll be fine. Maybe there's yeah. a little bit of that versus this game. Having been in that locker room, the mentality is totally different where it's I'm gearing up for an absolute fight. And I remember uh, Zach Banner when uh, I, when he was with me there, like – the, I remember his mentality, not that it changed, but I remember him him kind of touching on that. Like when you play a Utah team, when you play a Stanford team, just your your your, your mentality that week at practice, your mentality coming into the game, it's it's just different. And maybe that uh that shift helps the offensive line here after a uh after a disappointing outcome last week. Yeah, I, I wonder if um if the altitude was any factor last week. And I only bring that up because in pregame stretching Drew Richmond, the right tackle, walked off and went to the bench and was getting oxygen. And this is before the game. This is just... What the heck? Are you serious? I mean, uh, uh, yeah. he had uh, – he had. I mean, maybe there's something going on, but he had uh, IV issues uh, week one, right? I, I think uh, – or week two, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's, that's a definite, yeah, yeah, definite yeah. concern. No, very valid point. Uh, that could be more of a Drew Richmond issue than an altitude issue. But he did come back by the end of the pregame and, and got back in and, and started uh, – Another note on the offensive line, uh, Andrew Voorhees is out indefinitely with a foot injury. And just from the little Clay gave us about it, it doesn't sound like he's at all a consideration to play this week, and we don't know how long it's going to be. I actually think that he's been the better right guard between him and Jalen McKenzie. And I think that having that rotation and having a sixth guy to bring in and, and, and spell McKenzie or spell Drew Richmond as McKenzie would move out to right tackle was valuable. And not having that, I don't think they are totally comfortable going any deeper in their O line depth. So I think that's an underrated. Um, who do you think that? Who do you think that six man's going to be now? Then I'd, I'd be curious to. Uh, how, how do you think that? Uh, yeah, th- that rotation. I, I have be? an answer. Yeah, um, because I was astutely observing uh, pregame from the field level, and I watched Drew Richmond walk off and and go get oxygen. They moved Justin Dietrich, the backup center, to right guard and moved McKenzie, the right tackle, for the rest of the pregame warm-ups until, um, until Richmond returns. So that would tell me that Dietrich is, is the guy they trust most. And they, they did cross-train a bunch of guys in the preseason. They, they want guys to be able to play multiple roles so they're not pigeonholed into, okay, this is our right tackle depth chart. This is our right guard depth chart. They have some flexibility, so I think Dietrich would be the next guy up. I love that cross training term. I, everyone, everyone with the USC affiliation uses it now, and it's spot on. <laughs> right, but right. it's this whole like for the half, first half second, I'm like, what the heck? They got Justin Dietrich doing like elite workouts in the gym cross training, <laughs> but then I'm like, all right, sweet, that's a Helton term saying uh, you can cross train him. And it, little tidbit there, I envision a lot of that is because there's so many less calls with this air raid offense that you're able terminology-wise to kind of shift guys just kind of across the board versus – and so, some of the O-line coaches that I had during my time, there's a lot of terminology and calls, and you got to kind of get accustomed to kind of the right guard spot. you got to get accustomed to the left tackle spot, and it's not so much shifting. I would be willing to bet that the air raid terminology allows you to do – to have a Justin Dietrich move from left guard, center, right guard, that kind of thing. And I know when I was there, Max Turk – if you're if you're obviously hardcore fans listening to this, Max Turk, Max Turk played all five uh, all five offense line spots. That was abnormal. Versus it maybe the, the 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 normal spot nowadays with this new scheme is kind of being able to uh, truly cross train guys efficiently. <laughs> it, it it is interesting how we subconsciously just accept these buzz terms and start using them because I I had never heard cross training in, in regards to football practice before. Uh, this spring, yeah, it's just already seeped into my my own vernacular. Um, yeah, it's, no, I'm with you. It's oh, funny. I'll, I'll, I'll oh, be oh, the buzz terms. Yep, I'll be uh, I'll be using that one moving forward. I, I the one everyone was fixated on last year was was Clay Helton's uh, situational mastery. <laughs> that's um, a John. That's a John a Baxter one. Of, for, for, so just so people know, Clay got that from John okay, Baxter. Okay, yeah, I got you. I got you. Just for a fun aside. When you were playing, was was there one saying or phrase that the coaches or Helton used or 
any of the other coaches that the players in the locker room would kind of uh, have fun with or yeah or recognize it was there's two, like a go-to saying yeah there's two that stick out when you say that i'm sure there's probably more but there's uh a stable like uh he helton always talks about the backs being a stable like a stable of backs and i know that's, that's yeah. maybe used throughout football a little bit but i feel like he always uses it uses it a bunch and kind of when you backtrack it his go-to thing is like big horse like instead of hey man or hey bro or hey big dog it's hey big horse kind of thing and so then it's like the the nice. horse of stables, and so I know, or like wait, a stable full of horses. Sorry, the other way around. Um, so it kind of goes hand in hand, and that was always kind of the, the 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 joke when I was there. But I'm sure he's got a new one, and that situational master thing is a special teams John Baxter deal. So kind of fun backtracking that too. Well, I, I mean, the new one this year is uh, what was it? So what? Now, yeah. So what now? So what that's, now? That's, what? that's the one yeah. we hear about a dozen times a week. <laughs> yeah, you you hear it a dozen times a week. It's used on my pregame and postgame show about a dozen times. So it's it's all over the place. And, and it's that's every coach. Every coach I've covered has has always had that that crutch phrase, and it becomes a an inside joke among the reporters and and the fans. And um, when I was covering the Florida Gators, Jim McElwain would say. And yet, to start every sentence, and <laughs> and the fan base had turned against him, and so it became a derisive term for the fan base. And yet, and they'd make some joke, and then his, his other one was, uh, "That's pretty cool." And especially when things weren't going well, that one didn't go over well with the fans. So uh, every coach has their has their phrases like that. Let's get back to the matchup. I, I got sidetracked. Um, if you're USC and you're coming off. Keaton Slovis' first real adversity, the three interceptions. Um, how do you approach this matchup? What, what would be your game plan or, or your plan of attack? Yeah, I think um, for Keaton Slovis, specifically for him, it's a great question too. I think you, you, you fall back on kind of the success he had at Stanford. You're preaching that success to him all the time. But I think you have to – not. it's not even selling because selling might have a negative, negative connotation, but the idea that – that experience at BYU was a huge grow, growing experience for him and learning experience. And that's not just like me being cliche. Like that's real, right? You go on the road, your first road environment, you go three picks, yet you still had it three picks like what in the red zone and still have a chance to win that ball game. So I think you look, you, you, you pitch it to him as a, uh, as a learning experience. Let's grow from it. And the, the reality is when you go back and look at his performance, it's pretty solid across the board except for those three throws. So you probably hang your, you hang your hat on, on kind of that. And uh, just allow him to go out there and kind of kind of make the throws, allow him to to to, to grow from the, the mistakes he made. Uh, but then schematically, I think that's the big question: is all right. So if you're Graham Harrell, this is not going to be the last time you see drop eight uh, defenses. And in the event, I mean, when that happens again, what's kind of the game plan moving forward? And the easy answer is, well, don't throw picks and don't turn the ball over, and then you're fine. Fair. I mean, that's that 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 is a very real and realistic answer. Um, but then do they try to get creative when the box count is favorable, but they're not necessarily able to run the ball? Do they get creative with maybe some screens on the outside or some other quick hitters that through the air, but then that act like act like kind of their run game, that kind of thing? Um, they, they, I, I, they do they go more to the shovel pass action? I remember that was uh, a big thing for Mike Leach and his uh and his offense is up there. I think SC's done it once. Like that's another way to attack a favorable box that's not necessarily just handing the ball off. So that's going to be a big question for Graham. But I think the reality is, though, I would be willing to bet that some of those runs that are in there that went for five or six yards, when the box is that favorable, they were one block away from breaking it. And so it's 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 honing into the receivers of a. Hey, Go get, go get that linebacker. Go finish that linebacker. Go finish that safety in the blocking scheme because when Vi, Vi or Marquis Step or Stephen Carr breaks it into that second level, it's not just a, a break it through or break it through the defensive line tackled for five. It's break it and then you break for 15, break for 20, and then that'll get teams out of drop eight because, man, you should punish a favorable box like they had last week against BYU, and it's USC's job and Graham Harrell's job to, uh, to figure, figure that out this week. Yeah, and going back to a discussion we had in the podcast earlier this week where we kind of, at least from our vantage point, dismissed the question of whether Clay Helton had taken over play calling. 
when we talked to Graham Harrell about it, he he laughed and said, "No, I, I called them all." Yeah. And I think, I think that what was a little overstated was was them grounding Slovis because it really was just that third quarter. And as, as Mike Jinks uh, so emphatically noted, it was just ten plays. Uh, that next series, he passed a bunch to Michael Pittman and drove him down the field for that touchdown where they took the lead briefly. And obviously they kept passing uh, here and there the rest of the fourth quarter. So it's not like they totally went away from it. Let me ask you this, though. You made this point on the earlier pod that Mike Leach has been seeing defenses try and go drop eight on him for years. He's been doing the same thing forever. What do they do to keep their passing attack going against those kind of looks that that kind of helps sustain them and not have to totally divert from their identity? Yeah, I mean, one, that's kind of the, the evolution of Mike Leach the past, I don't know, five, six years is they have started to run the ball. Like they had, like uh, Washington, James Washington, their back last year, I believe uh, was his first name. He was a great running back and they were able to do that. Um, and then they have Max Borgie now. So they're able, instead of going for four or five yards, they're able to go for eight yards and it really punishes the defense. I think they also have got creative, like I talked about with those screens and shovel passes and kind of what what, yeah. what does that mean? So it means... Uh, kind of getting like those tunnel screens and those quick bubble screens where you kind of get your offense alignment and you're asking your offense alignment to kind of block linebackers and corners downfield and it's a different attack that way. But then the reality is like a lot of those, a lot of your two-minute beat, two-minute drill beaters where it's a deep dig route, where it's a running a, running a corner safety off to plug in a deep out or a corner behind it kind of thing. A lot of those two-minute chunk yardage plays that you have installed in you might have to go to those on normal down and distance and then really kind of work four receivers, five receivers into a concept and kind of flood a zone kind of thing is a, is a term you'll hear. So that's big. And then I also think it's big, like those check, those check downs. So if it's not there and Keaton Slovis gets the check down out on time, I don't care if you have drop eight and you have a guy into the flat and it's one-on-one with a swing pass that's just like an easy, just like kind of kind of tunnel drill type thing. If you're a USC running back, you got to make that first guy miss and and, and, and kind of go for seven, eight yards. So I think it's kind of a group-wide effort. I don't think uh, I don't think there's any ground necessary groundbreaking answer, but the reality is it is very simple math, and you can watch it on your TV screen at home. When they go drop eight or they go light box, like you have to be able to. That's just like literally how it works. It'd be like I don't know what an anal- analogy is, but it's like if in basketball, if they're jamming the key, you have to be able to shoot from the outside. That's just like fundamental sports kind of kind of kind of sports knowledge. But um, I think we, you you, you kind of brush over those turnovers a little bit from last week. Those are huge. You got to fix all those. But uh, that's kind of where I net out with kind of the next steps for USC's offense. Yeah. Yes. Certainly, that they can't make mistakes like they made glaring mistakes, red zone mistakes, or not red zone mistakes, but those that set up red zone situations for their team. So yeah, that's that's an obvious point of correction for Keaton Slovis. Um, as far as the way he's bouncing back, we talked to him on Monday. Uh, he was as even keeled and mild mannered and had that smile on his face as always. I, I just don't think that he'll be mentally affected. He might have been, you know, during the game. And and Graham Harrell did at least acknowledge that in addition to adjusting to the defense, he wanted to take the pressure off Keaton for a little bit, and that yep. factored into some of that play calling there in the third quarter, and and that should speak further to debunking the conspiracy theory about play calling because everything Harrell said in, in answering the questions about that seemed like he was the man in, in charge of all that. One more note on that, just to, to close the book, you know, people he, he acknowledged that that Clay has given him latitude and autonomy from the start, and that, that's the only way that this can work. And then the first conversation that, that was discussed, and he has to be able to get into his own rhythm. And he said, you know, between series, we'll talk, you know, maybe we should do this or I'm seeing this. But then in series, he's making the calls. Well, people jumped all over that comment and said, why, why is Clay talking to him between series and telling him to run the ball more? I responded on the message board. I said, that's every head coach in the country. Yeah. No head, co- no head coach is standing there the whole game with their hands in their pocket and going, oh, I wonder what, what Graham Harrell's going to do the rest of the game. No, they have discussions. And people are just so quick to uh, assume that everything Clay does is wrong that while there are a lot of valid criticisms, the unvalid ones undermine um, the whole dialogue when people just want to attach everything to him as, as a negative. And 
yes, I think he's given Graham Harrell autonomy. I think that, sure, maybe he did say at halftime, what do you think about us going to the run more in this third quarter? And, and, and Harrell, if he had a true opposition to it, I guess there would be a discussion and maybe they would talk it out. I'm guessing that he saw the same thing. Yeah, I'm right with you. And if you're a fan that says, all right, why the heck we're running in the third quarter, I would love for you to tell me your plan of attack through the air because that's it's hard. I mean, it's just it, – I don't care which guys you have – they got eight guys back there. It's it, it it's tough. You got you got to be able to run. But uh, yeah, you're spot on. Every co. I mean, that's what you want at a staff. You want guys to be adding their input, kind of maybe checking you on your thoughts. Maybe they're seeing something different. Uh, obviously, here's another thing. Helton's on the sideline. Graham's up in the booth. You got you want those guys talking all the time. Maybe a uh, Drew Richmond is gassed that uh, Graham Harrell can't can't see up in the booth, and so you want a Clay Helton to say. Hey, maybe hey, don't be be careful running running behind the right side. Drew's getting gassed or whatever. That's just an example, but that connection you have to have, you want to have. Um, yeah, that's not slowing down anytime soon. And shoot, I'd be concerned if that if it was if the, if that communication was not happening, that'd be a huge concern on my end. Yeah, and watching the game back, you also saw Mike Jinks was was talking to Keaton Slopes at times on the sidelines. He he's down on the field with the headset and. So there are a lot of voices that go into to every play like that. The final point I'll make on that is is the flip side. What if USC had kept passing it and Keaton had two more turnovers in the third quarter? Fans would be railing against Helton saying, how do you not have any control over what your offense is doing? How do you not say exactly. run the ball more? So it goes, it yeah. goes both ways. Yep. Okay, let's get into predictions for this game. Uh, I'll start it off. This is the first time I'm not picking USC to win this year. I'm not saying they can't. I think it would be a great jolt for the season if they surprised everybody and and made us quickly dismiss that BYU game as as just a, a, a poor afternoon of football. But this matchup worries me from a number of levels. All the ones we've talked about so far, Tyler Huntley worries me. Zach Moss worries me. So I'm going to go Utah 34-27. Ooh, I thought, uh, I thought we, were gonna, we were gonna match on that one. I'll go... Uh... I'll go Utah 34 as well. Um, I swear I had that written down before you said that. Uh, can't sleep on the Ute special teams game. I know they had a uh, little kicker controversy this offseason, but you talk about like team with the best specialists historic, like year after year. It's usually Utah. So get two field goals. That's how they're getting to, how they're getting to 31. Um, USC score-wise, what do we got here, Ryan? I'll go uh, – I'll go. I'll go seventeen, um, and I think another reason we didn't even touch on this 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 podcast, but Utah secondary is good. Um, you talk about Jalen Johnson; he might be he's he might be the best corner in in this conference. I don't even know if we talked about him. Number uh, number one, yeah. Um, I mean, he he's played a lot of ball. He's big. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever going to. Uh, going to shut down Michael Pittman, but uh, I would envision that he goes on Michael Pittman only because he's, he's physical, but uh, yeah, I mean, went through, uh, he's, he's great. Um, and then they got a safety back there that's played a lot of ball. Um, and so I think their secondary matches up well with USC. You're not going to shut down USC's uh, receiving core, but in terms of matching up, I think they're solid. And then that paired with the defensive line, I think it's going to get, going to give SC trouble and SC's blueprint to, to beating this team is you got to stop Zach Moss first, but Thirty-four seventeen is uh, is where I'm netting out. Well, if you just look at last week and the way things played out, USC's best offensive series all were with a heavy dose of Michael Pittman. Yeah, he, he had two of the touchdowns, and I I like Tyler Vaughn's. Uh, obviously, I like Amon Ra a lot. We didn't see a lot of him last week, but if uh, if Utah's able to neutralize Michael Pittman, that's that's definitely would be a, a key swinging factor. So that'd be a fun matchup to watch. Yep, Jalen Johnson is the corner, and uh, Julian Blackman is the safety. Both those guys are great players. Uh, Johnson, uh, yeah, you can put me on record on that. He's probably the best corner in the Pac-12. I'm, as I say that, I'm going over the. Uh, I think I'm going over the. I'm going over the Pac-12. But uh, yeah, no, he's elite. He's going to be a good uh, good test for Michael Pittman out wide. Still love Pitt. I think Pitt'll be, Pitt can operate against anyone, but uh, it's a point worth bringing up. Love the strong opinions. Well, we're going to touch on one last thing here. It's, it's not totally about on the field. There's uh, some interesting dynamics in the Coliseum on Friday night as the Fox National College Football Show, which features Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart, 
Urban Meyer, uh, they're going to be at the Coliseum, which means, first of all, Reggie Bush is back in the Coliseum. Uh, obviously, USC has had to disassociate from its former star running back uh, after the NCAA sanctions. That's a major point of contention for fans that he's not better honored in the stadium, that he, he can't be more of a of a you know visual attachment to the program. What do you think about all that? And and I, when you were playing, was was the legend of Reggie Bush still a, a thing that was talked about a lot among players, or you, could you just feel it within the fan base? I'll never forget the Pac-12 championship. My red shirt sophomore year, it would have been, I believe, uh, whenever Kessler was in there. Uh, Reggie showed up to the locker room. It was up in the Bay Area. I believe Reggie was a Niner at the time. Uh, and he came in the locker room, and he was the only guy I had seen our locker room kind of – the only former player I had seen our locker room kind of like sh- – like, kind of oh my gosh Reggie's here kind of thing and there, there wow. definitely was an element of a lot of guys childhood heroes and there was an element of that and there was an element of kind of all the behind the scenes shenanigans of like oh he's here like all that stuff kind of thing um so I can only imagine what it's going to be like on Saturday uh I can only imagine what he's going to go through I mean you talk about um I mean on a much smaller scale uh not to not to compare my scenario in one in at all to Reggie's, but it was weird for me coming back to the Coliseum as a guy who kind of transferred away kind of thing, like sure. one of those deals. It was weird for me coming back week one this past year, and uh, I can only imagine he's going to get a comment from every fan he crosses by, that whole thing. Uh, it's probably going to be good that Matt's going to be there because Matt's, uh, I mean, Matt's a super, like, just genuine cool dude. He'll, he'll, he'll probably uh, take him uh, – they'll, they'll probably be together the whole, the whole day, obviously, but – I mean, it'll it'll be it'll be funny to see. And then you mentioned the Urban Meyer deal. Like, I just hope fans like don't buy into that yet. I mean, it's week four. Like, I know it's kind of like whatever you think about it. And I mean, we're all human. It's like sure, like maybe in maybe down the road, who knows? But like, I would hate for that to kind of take uh, t- take things away. I mean, I I totally feel like Reggie should be celebrated and whatnot. But uh, I'm sure. I'm sure fans will it'll, – it'll be an interesting dynamic, and I'm sure his emotions will be rolling that day. The Urban Meyer specter has been hanging over this program since he stepped down in Ohio State. It's been a, a narrative or story talking point yep. for the last year. Everyone expects he's going to coach again. USC fans have been uh, looking at, ahead to the next move for a while. It's just very awkward uh, for Clay Helton to have him in, in the building. I'm sure Clay's not thinking about that, that at all, but it's just an awkward juxtaposition that he's, he's going to be there and be a part of this game in, in some capacity, a game that could be very pivotal to uh, Clay's tenure and where it goes from here. So yeah. it's, 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 it's an interesting note at the very least. Um, I, I'm with you. I hope it doesn't take away from the game. Uh, you know, People can, can pine for – whatever coach they want or whatever they want to happen. But uh, there's, we covered a lot of reasons why this game is pretty intriguing on its own right. I hope that's, that still stands for most people on Friday. Just to close on Reggie, uh, you know, I, I think it's really unfortunate that USC still has to be separated from one of its greatest players of all time. I think it's a bit over the top. I mean, all the stuff that's happened in college football programs, all the sanctions and penalties that have gone on across the country, this is a stiff one that he's not able to be more consistently and, and visibly honored as a rich part of this program's history. I know that's the feeling of the entire fan base. So while this is a unique situation because he's here in a work capacity, it is cool that he can at least be part of uh, a big night in the Coliseum. I hope the reception for him is – it will be because SC fans love him, but I hope this the structure of the Fox setup allows fans to kind of be close to him, and it maybe opens people's eyes to kind of every, everyone. Every yeah. People know the deal, but whether it's the USC administration or if it's uh, the NCAA or if it's the Pac-12 or whatever, I hope it opens people's eyes to like, all right, this was over over a decade ago. It's 15 years ago. Reggie's a good dude. Like. Let, let, let's bring him back into like the tradition of what SC was, especially with like you like you touched on kind of a lot of the other stuff that's kind of gone on in the college football world, in the grand scheme of what that whole situation meant. Um, it'd be nice to see number five stuff back in the Coliseum. He's kind of getting the Pete Rose treatment, and it just seems extreme. Yep, yep, right with you. Uh, and, and and I'll add one more point. Uh, you, you know, we talk about 
his legend enduring here, it happens a couple times a month where I talk to a recruit and then they go, oh yeah, USC's always been a dream school for me. I'm like, oh, why's that? And they're like, well, I grew up watching Reggie Bush highlights. And it's not even just running backs. It's just, it's, it's across the field. Like the impact that he continues to have uh, for that brand is significant. That's funny. And now yeah. USC- That's funny you say highlights. One sec, sorry. That's funny you say highlights because for me, it was, I remember, I grew up watching him. Those are my first football yeah. memories of like, oh, Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart versus now yeah. I'm 23 and it's the uh, 18, 16, 17, 18 year olds have to watch highlights and not, uh, and not actual <laughs> <Yeah>. footage. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, it is because you, you do the math and you're like, well, wait, you would have been four or three yep. or whatever, whatever it would be. Uh, but they, they, they still find that attachment. And it's uh, now USC is not closing the deal with all those recruits. So it's not it's not like it's, it's winning in every battle, but it, it still resonates. And, you know, a classic one was B. John Robinson, the, the, the four star running back from Arizona, who was their top running back target. When he came here, they made sure that he wore Reggie's jersey number that they brought the Heismans out around him because that was his guy gr- growing up. That was, that was the reason why he was interested in USC. And they didn't win that battle. But, again, R- Reggie Bush looms large uh, in the Trojans community in the history of this program, regardless of what the NCAA says. No doubt. It'll be, uh, it'll be an interesting Friday. I was about to say Saturday. Interesting Friday. Short week. But, uh, Short yeah, week. no, it'll be good. Short week, and we got two great podcasts in. Max, fun as always. Always a pleasure.